I want to tell you what's coming up here in the next few weeks. Uh, September is coming. That means the fall, which we hope means cooler weather, but it certainly means a new church year, some new things are happening. We have been having some adult Sunday school classes. Our children and youth Sunday school classes will start meeting on the Sunday after Labor Day. That'll be September the 13th. So from preschool up through 12th grade will be added. Also, the Emerging Leaders class will start meeting on that same Sunday. So we will have Sunday school from preschool on up to 90, 100, whatever. You know, so for everybody, some of you from being able to be here. But as you can imagine, we want to make sure that our, our youngest are safe. And so we want to do that properly. So we're going to do all this stuff in sort of stages. So that's what's happening on that Sunday. Also, our children's ministry on Wednesday night will start on September the 9th. And also, God's Young Ladies is also going to begin in September. So those will be happening on the Friday nights in September. That, all that information is in your bulletin. The thing that's happening in August is that uh, the Salo Center is doing a virtual baby shower. So if you would like to support that crisis pregnancy ministry, you can go to their website and you can purchase items for them. And they have all that information. Class that will meet during the Sunday school hour, that will go through the books of Daniel and Revelation. On September the 6th, he will be in the Fishers of Men classroom. In that class for that Sunday, he's going to explain what's going to happen. Then it will start on Sunday, September the 27th, during Sunday school, and it will meet in the fellowship hall. So that information is also in your bulletin. So he'll be talking about Daniel and Revelation. Our Sunday sermons in September and October will be about Jesus talking in Matthew 24 and 25 about the end times. So this fall is going to be a focus in that Sunday school class and in the worship service about the Lord coming back. It is happening soon, and we should be ready for it. Story, and as our speaker told us last week, stories don't mean they're like the princess and the pea. These are stories that they really are history that happened in the Bible. My favorite uh, history story from the Bible is David and Goliath. And one reason it's my favorite, there's a children's song that goes along with it. And that's my favorite too. So I'm going to enjoy it, whether y'all do or not. So this is what we're going to do. I'm going to share the story of David and Goliath. Now, most of you already know that story, right? Uh, boys and girls, if you know the story of David and Goliath, just raise your hand. If you've heard it before, you know it right. And adults, I'm sure all of you have heard it. So you know it's a story about David, who was a young person, probably a, a teenager. And he down. So that's the story. So I'm not going to tell you all the details because you know David, a young shepherd boy, defeats a huge giant. And most of the time when the story is told, that's what people get excited about. It's the underdog. It's the little guy beating the big guy. But I'm amazed that David even got to the point where he was on the battlefield with Goliath. And that's what I want to focus on when I tell you the story. You see, David had seven brothers. Aren't you glad you don't have that many brothers? Especially, <laughs> yes, I can see how everyone here is glad, Jackson's glad he doesn't. Brothers were at the battle where the giant Goliath was taunting the Israelite army. And so David went there to see what was going on and to give a report back to his dad, but his older brothers thought he was just being lazy. They said to him, David, you go back home. You're supposed to be taking care of the sheep. You're not supposed to be here. You just wanted to see a show. That's why you showed up. So his brothers told him, you are too lazy. 
When he heard what the giant was doing, he was defying God and he was wanting to fight the Israelites. David said, I will do it. But the king, King Saul said to him, you are too young. But David said, yes, I'm going to do it. And then King Saul tried to put his armor on him. So David's trying to walk around with this adult armor that's heavy. The sword was too heavy. He could barely walk. He couldn't pick up the sword. And David said, I can't go into battle with this stuff. I need to have what I'm used to. If you know the story, all David fought his battles with was a slingshot. And with that, he was able to kill lions, able to kill bears. So he knew he could kill a giant. And I kind of agree with him. If that, I think I'd rather face a giant than a ferocious lion or a, a bear that's as tall as a grizzly bear coming at me. So if David took on those and killed those, well, what's a giant? Too lazy. You're too young. You have to do it this way. The rest of the Israelite army were too afraid. And boys and girls, that's what happens so many times, and adults too. When God wants you to do something, people will say, don't do it, it's too scary. Don't do it, you're too young. Don't do it, you're too lazy. Don't do it, do it this way. If David had listened to all those voices, he would never even have gotten to the battlefield with the giant. But he didn't listen to his brothers or to the rest of the army or to King Saul. He listened to God. And when he was on the battlefield, he wasn't going to fight that giant with any armor or with any armies. He was going to fight that giant because God was on his side and God fought for him. And so with that slingshot, he did bring that giant down and he won the victory for the Israelites. So don't listen to other people when they try to tell you no when God has told you yes. I think that's another lesson we can learn other than the fact the little guy beat the big guy. Now here's the song I want to sing for you. It's about David. If any of you have been with me, boys and girls, on Wednesday nights, you already know it. If you want to stand with me, you can. Adults, if you want to stand, you can. It's sung best when you're standing up. But if you want to sing it with me, this is it. Okay? <clears throat> Only a boy named David. There you go. So there's some of you. Okay, here we go. Only a boy named David, but he could pray and sing. Only a boy named David. Only a babbling brook. Only a boy named David. But five little stones he took. And one little stone went into the sling. And the sling went round and round. One little stone went into the sling. And the sling went round and round. This is the best part. And round and round and round and round and round and round and round. And one little stone went into the air. And the giant came tumbling down. I'm supposed to fall, but I'm not going to do that. Dale, you remember that song? Yeah, okay. <laughs> uh, okay. So, boys and girls and adults, that's the story of David and Goliath. Let's watch this video to get, for me to get my stuff ready, and we're going to learn from Luke chapter 7.
don't know when the last time was you hosted a dinner party. With this uh, pandemic going, it's probably been a while. But I know you've all hosted at least a children's birthday party, or you've had some of your friends over for dinner. So I want you to think about the ones that went badly. I hope you didn't have too many of those. Was there a time maybe that the oven had smoke unexpectedly, who ruined the whole party for you? Uh, I don't know what worst parties were. I don't know what awkward moments happened in your dinner parties. But I found these couple of cartoons that remind us that parties that adults go to are a little different than ones that children go to. You know, if you're having an adult party, it's beautiful music playing in the background, maybe some light, soft jazz or something. I don't know, or with your favorite music. You can smell the prosciutto, and you're talking about how this recipe came from Food and Wine magazine. And so you're talking about the hikes in the Andes. You know, very adult, very calm. Uh, when children are involved, it's a, a little different. And a, no, pants back on this instant. Sweetie, did you poop? My chair. No, my chair. Does that sound like a birthday party that your kids have had? So parties and dinner parties can go very awry, especially when guests show up that aren't announced. The account we're going to look at this morning is in Luke chapter 7. Again, it's someone who is in this story who does not have a name. But what she did is an example to all of us of how to love God. It begins with a dinner party, and it begins with a party crasher. Luke chapter 7, I'm going to read it for us as we study it this morning. Then one of the Pharisees invited him, that's Jesus, to eat with him. He entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And a woman in the town, who was a sinner, found out that Jesus was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house. She brought an alabaster jar of perfume and stood behind him at his feet, weeping, and began to wash his feet with her tears. She wiped his feet with her hair, kissing them and anointing them with the perfume. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, This man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what kind of woman. Jesus replied to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. He said, Say it, teacher. A creditor had two debtors. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Since they could not pay it back, he graciously forgave them both. So which of them will love him more? Simon answered, I suppose the one he forgave more. You have judged correctly, he told him. Turning to the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she with her tears has washed my feet and wiped them with her hair. You didn't anoint my head with olive oil, but she has anointed my feet with perfume. Therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven. That's why she loved much. But the one who is forgiven little, loves little. Then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this man who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This story is about... Two people and Jesus. 
First is the Bible. He was respected because he was a rabbi. In fact, the people looked up to the Pharisees and thought the Pharisees were the most righteous people that lived. They were the ones that had to be closest to God. The Pharisees knew the word of God backwards and forwards. And they had all kinds of laws that they had even added to it. And it was their whole life's work to keep each and every one of them to the nth degree. And they were proud of that and tried to do that. And saw themselves and the rest of society as well saw them as the cream of the crop. Most righteous, the closest to God. Told as a sinner. Some have speculated that she was a prostitute. All the Bible tells us is she was a woman and she was a sinner. So I don't know what that says about ladies when they, people speculate that. So I, I don't want to say what kind of sinner she was. I think the important thing is just to realize she is a sinner. It doesn't say what kind because all of us are supposed to identify with her. And if she was a specific kind of sinner, we might say, well, that's not me. I don't have... I don't." Understand what she is. So her specific sin isn't mentioned. It's just the fact that she is a sinner. And especially to the Pharisee, he would consider lots of people to be, quote, sinners who were beneath him. People who didn't know the law as well as he did. People who didn't keep the law as well as he was. There were a lot of people the Pharisees considered sinners. And because they were sinners, they were unclean. They were worthless. They really didn't need to be even given the time of day. And it was this woman who came and crashed Simon's party. So I'm sure he wasn't too thrilled when she came in. They were considered to be far from God. I want you to think about this. Isn't it true that really everybody knows they're not perfect? Everybody has a sense that they have done wrong that they think about doing wrong, even if people don't call it sin, there are still, I think everybody has a sense of right and wrong and knows they don't even live up themselves to their own standard. I'm certain Simon knew that sin was bad. And I don't have to spend a half hour telling you that sin is bad. We can just cut to the chase and look at this church sign. It tells us all we need to know. You know, the, the church sign says, it's too hot to change the sign. God is good. Sin is bad. Come inside for details. Okay? So that's all you really need to know. Sin is bad. God is good. There you go. Simon knew that sin was bad and that God was good. Most people, even if they're not Christians, know sin is bad. Even if they don't acknowledge that God is good. We're Christians. We know sin is bad. And God is good. Simon knew that. That wasn't his problem. His problem was he didn't think he had a sin problem. Does that make sense? His problem was he didn't know he had a problem, okay? He knew specific sins better than anybody. But that wasn't his concern. That wasn't his problem. He was righteous. He was close to God. It was all the things that he could do and all the verses he could quote. He didn't have a problem. This woman had a problem. She was the sinner. He was the rabbi. He didn't have a sin problem. And that's the problem that even we as Christians can have. I love this Babylon B graph here. 
It says on the, the one side, the degree of hideousness against the holy God, the depravity of sin, it's on a scale of one to a million. The sins that I struggle with, well, they register about a one. Bad sinners and they need to repent. There's a lot of truth to this. We often will see the sin in our life and say, we don't really have a problem with it. It's little. It doesn't hurt anybody. It's who I am. And then we look at other people. Well, they better be listening. They need to do some repenting. Boy, the way they live their life, if they don't turn it around, God's going to strike them down. You have, everybody else is bad, but we don't have a problem. That was Simon's problem. That can be our problem even as Christians. And when that happens, what we do is we kind of think of God less. If we're self-righteous, we don't really need God. Because we're doing pretty good. And then we start to think less of other people. As Simon did, this woman was a sinner. She shouldn't even be here. Why is she doing this? We can have the same attitude toward people that we consider beneath. We start to think more of ourselves. We think, well, I'm pretty good. I've got this thing covered. I understand how to live this Christian life. I'm pretty close to God. I'm a, I'm a pretty good person. And that makes sense because the essence of every sin is selfishness. And so if we are going to ignore or downplay the sin problem that we have, naturally then we're going to think more of ourselves, think we don't really need God, and we don't really need others or they're just beneath us. That's the problem Simon had, and even we as Christians can have. The great news is there's a solution for the sin problem. Whether it's an unbeliever who has never heard of Jesus, or whether it's a Christian who has been saved for years and is struggling to see how deep their sin still is. Those are the words that Jesus said to the woman. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Listen again. Your sins are forgiven. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. See, the answer to sin's problem is always the same. It's God, it's faith, and it's grace. When Jesus said to the woman, your sins are forgiven, the guests that were seated there started talking among themselves, saying, who is this guy? Who does he think he has the right to forgive? The should have been, hey, God's here. The Messiah, he's right here. They missed that part. But they were right. Only God can forgive sin. And it makes sense. When we sin, we are disobeying a holy God. We have, in a sense, offended Him. We have done something wrong against Him. So He's the only one who can forgive us then. If you do something to me and hurt me, can my friend forgive you on my behalf? No, that's not how it works. My friend says, oh, you're forgiven. That doesn't restore the relationship. You're not really forgiven. It has to be me who forgives you. And he's the only one who has the power to cancel the effect of sin and the eternal consequences of sin. Only God can do that. 
And it's always by faith that our sins are forgiven. For this woman, I think she had at some point in the past, maybe the very recent past, and she believed that he was the Messiah and believed that he could forgive her sin. And she knew her sin was great. I don't think it's here at this dinner party that she receives the forgiveness. See, sometimes I think we misread the story and we think she's crying and she's sorrowful because of her sin and because of her contrition and because she's kneeling before Jesus and because he sees how sorry she is and sees how torn up she is about her sin that he sees that sorrow and that repentance and he says to you, your sins are forgiven. You notice the what Jesus is saying to her here is an assurance. Your sins are forgiven. Your faith has saved you. These are our statements to her in that moment to assure her, even though you are a sinner who has sinned greatly, you have believed, and you go in peace, was the last words that he said to her. You know, a life that's lived in sin is a life of bondage. It's often a life of discouragement, distress. It's a life often without peace or purpose. But when your sins are forgiven... Now you do have purpose, you have joy, you have happiness. You have a Savior who loves you. You have a future in heaven with Him. Servant, the peace gives it to us as a gift. That's the answer for sin's problem for someone who's an unbeliever like this woman was at one point. She knew her sin was great, but she knew that Jesus was the Savior and she believed and she was saved. If you're here today and you are a person who has never believed in Jesus, trusted in Him, have faith that Jesus is God. He died for your sin. He rose again to life and He says to you today, your sins can be forgiven. You have faith in me. And know that that's a gift that God gives, not because of things that you have done. But for us who are Christians, the answer to our struggle with sin is the same. When we're Christians, we still have our sin nature in us. We still are humans. We still are tempted by Satan. We still do sin and can sin and unfortunately as an unbeliever. So how do we gain the victory over sin? The same way. It begins with God. God, the Holy Spirit, lives in us. When we are Christians, when we are believers, God's here. And he's here to give us power and strength to say no to sin. And it's by faith we trust in him, gift to us that helps us. So by God, by faith, and by grace, we can have the victory over sin. There's no sin we have to commit. There's no temptation we're promised that... We don't have a way out of. When we yield to the Spirit and obey Him, we can have victory over sin.
The really important part of the story comes next and is the focus of it that you first are shocked at when you read it and when you hear it. And it's about seeing a woman Jesus, and she immediately comes, and she's pouring perfume on his feet. She's crying, and the tears are on his feet, and she is wiping the tears and the perfume off with her hair. It was a public disgrace for a woman to pull her hair down in the presence of men or in public. But she didn't care. She was kissing his feet. That's even shocking as you think about it. Now, let's be honest. How many people would you get down and kiss their feet and cry on their feet, pour expensive perfume on their feet, wipe your... But even then, as you're thinking about it, you're saying, no, I'm not doing that even for you, honey. You know, when you think about it, it's humiliating. It's gross. Why would anyone do that? That's what is the shocking part of this story. Why would she? Well, the key is in the parable that Jesus tells. It's very short. Money, owe money to someone, isn't it like a weight that's on you? I mean, if you have a car payment, a house payment, you have that debt, isn't it like a weight that certainly feels like a weight's been lifted when you pay it off? It also is like a chain and a ball that's on you that imprisons you in a way. It hinders you. You want to spend your money in this way. Oh, I can't. I've got this debt that I owe. So it imprisons and it's a weight. And when it's forgiven, there's relief. There's joy. 500 would be about two years wages back then. So you... Let me see you use your calculator in your mind and figure out how much money that would be for you. Every penny that you make in one year, multiply it by a second year, that's how much money this person owed. That's a lot of money. I would say it's about how much you would owe in a mortgage, if you're toward the beginning of your mortgage, maybe. Some of you have already paid off your mortgage, or you've only got a few thousand dollars. But others like myself, I've got, I think I'm going to die before my mortgage is done. Anyway, you know, any of you feel that way? You know, it feels like a 60-year mortgage or a 70-year mortgage. So anyway, for me to pay off my mortgage, I wouldn't be able to eat or do anything else. But, you know, so that's a big debt for me. Now, the 51 is probably about two months' wages and maybe what you spend at Christmas when you overspend. You know, see, the, the, the unwise people spend with a credit card and they start at Black Friday and they spend till Christmas Eve, and then the bill comes in January, and they look like this guy. Oh my goodness, what did I do? The smart people start saving for Christmas January the 1st, and then they have 12 months to save up for Christmas. And so that's about two months. But wouldn't that be a great relief? Either one would be. If Christmas came and you had a two months worth of credit card debt, and someone said, don't worry about it, I'll pay it. You'd be ecstatic. Looking to 30 plus years of paying that off and someone said, I'll take care of it. It's gone. You'd be really excited. And that's Jesus' point. And Simon got it. If you have a lot of sin and it's forgiven, you're going to be ecstatic. You're going to be joyful. You're going to be thankful. There's going to be gratitude. That's what this whole story is about. This is what this woman is doing. Now Simon could have kissed Jesus and greeted him. He could have had a servant wash his feet. He could have 
anointed Jesus' head with oil. Simon could have shown some kindness and humility and reverence, but Simon didn't do any of that. And Jesus points it out to him. Hey, Simon, you didn't do anything for me. By washing Jesus' feet, respect by anointing his feet, reverence by being at his feet. See, Simon thought he didn't have a sin problem. He probably didn't even think Jesus could do anything about it if he had one. So was there any gratitude in Simon's heart towards Jesus? Nope. This woman, though, she realized the depth of her sin. She knew that Jesus had forgiven it. So she was filled with joy, filled with love, devotion. And when she found out Jesus was at Simon's house, she and she did it in a way that would show, it would shock the party and shock the community that she had thrown off cultural bounds. And she had poured out expensive perfume. And she had humbled herself in such a way. Scandalous, ridiculous, over the top were probably the comments. But in her heart, she knew she had been forgiven a lot. And there was nothing that she could give or say or do that was going to say thank you enough. And I think, and this is my challenge, as I said earlier, all of us have a great sin problem. And if you are a believer, your sin has been forgiven. Shouldn't there be gratitude, thankfulness, joy? If you'd be jumping up and down when your mortgage is paid off, why aren't you jumping up and down? Jesus saved you from hell. And what happens as we are Christians, and sometimes what happens when we are Christians for longer and longer, we kind of forget what it was like to have that burden of sin. We kind of forget what it was like to have that moment of peace when we were saved. Maybe we take it for granted Maybe it's not such a big deal. I want you this morning, if that's how your Christian life has been, eh, yeah, thanks, Jesus. Thanks for me getting me out of that spot. Yeah, you're really great. Woohoo! thanks. Now, that, that's it. Maybe think a little bit more this morning about the depth of our sin and the power and the grace of God. This is a special weekend for me. It was 45 years ago, as an eight-year-old boy, that I believed in Jesus and I was saved. And as an eight-year-old, I don't remember the exact date, but it was this time, the end of August. By the Colosseum, I remember that day of my salvation. And I'll be honest with you, it wasn't the first time I heard the gospel. I don't even remember exactly what the evangelist said. But I'll never forget that moment of decision. When I knew, even as an eight-year-old boy, I mean, what kind of trouble can an eight-year-old boy get into? I mean, there can be some, but it, you know, it wasn't a life of hardened years of sin and criminality that preceded my salvation. But even then, at that young age, I knew I was a sinner and I needed a Savior. And I had to decide, and it had to be that night, I put my faith in Jesus. Of course, there was a counselor. He shared with me the gospel again. And I prayed 
And again, the words exactly fade over the years. It has been 45 years, you know. I, I can't be forgiven that, I think. But the emotion, the relief, and the peace, I've never forgotten. Sometimes I do have to go back and remember that day. Because over the years, it can become the ancient past. My Christian life can become something that I get used to. Jesus, who at one time was a savior delivering me from sin, is now So I challenge you this morning, if that's where you are as a Christian, remember, maybe you need to remember that day of salvation. Respond with the thankfulness that comes from that. The last verse I want to leave with you is Mark chapter 12, verse 30. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. Heart, soul, mind, strength. That's all you are. That's all you have. You're, you're in your very soul. Your whole being who you are. We're supposed to love God with all of that. Because he has done great things for us. We sang that song. God has done great things. Yes, he has. How do we respond? With love. All we have in love for God. If I'm honest with myself, I don't know if there's ever been a day in my life that I have loved God with all my heart, my mind, my soul, and my strength. I think it's maybe as bad as 10%. I don't know. As you think about it, you may agree with me or disagree, but isn't it challenging to think that we are to love God with everything we are? Not just a little bit, not just some, all of who we are. And He deserves no less because of what he has given us, eternal life, and what he has done for us, saved us from our sin. So brothers and sisters, let's get those love meters up. I mean, if they're down at 10%, they need to be up higher. Move them up right now as we respond. Move them up tomorrow, each and every day. Begin your day with thinking about what God has done for you. I'm going to pray, and we are going to respond. You need to know Jesus as your Savior for the first time. Like I did 45 years ago. Today can be your day of salvation. If you are a Christian whose love for the Lord has waned because the years have gone on. Rekindle that love this morning. I'll give you one easy way that you can rekindle your love for God. And that is to simply obey Him. In fact, Jesus says, if you love me, might fill in the blank and think, oh, I'll sing a lot. I'll serve a lot. I'll, uh, I'll, whatever. He says simply, if you love me, you will obey me. That will show how much you love the Lord. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, we are thankful this morning for what you have done for us. We thank you for Jesus, your son, dying on the cross for us and saving us. We thank you that you have given us your Holy Spirit to empower us and strengthen us for each and every day to live a life pleasing to you without sin. So, Lord, I pray this morning for any who are here today who do not know you as Savior, that right now would be their moment of salvation. 
where even right now, Lord, they would call out to you and admit that they are a sinner and say that they believe you, Jesus, that you are the one who died for them and that you are the one who gives them eternal life and that they would do it right now. And as they do so right now, Lord, those of us who have been Christians for many years, I pray that we would look at our life and see how our love for you, Lord, is in comparison for what you have done for us. I pray that we would love you with all of our heart, our soul, our mind, and our strength. Right now, Lord, may we make it so as we are right with you in this moment of response. And I pray, Jesus, in your name, amen. I'll be at the back to pray with you as we sing. This is a time to sing, but it's just not a song. It's a time to respond. I've said enough. It's time for you to deal with God right now, okay? Let's sing. <laughs>